Again, I'd like to welcome you to worship this, this afternoon. Now, what are we? We're, I'm quite confused. We've done this so many times already, Brian, right? This is this morning, right? We're still in the morning. <laughs> if you're a guest with us, I'm going to try and not screw it up anymore after that, okay? How's that? Um, my name is Wayne, and I really am glad you're with us this morning. I'm one of the pastors here, and I've just started out in an absolutely horrible way, but we'll see if we can't fix it and make it better, all right? I want you to take your Bible, please, this morning and turn to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a little bit hard to find. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. And, um, well, if you grab the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you, you can see the page numbers on the screen behind me, and uh, that'll help you out. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you home as our gift to you, please. I want to start by um, reminding you of something that may be in the dark recesses of your memory. Maybe you've never heard this. Uh, but tomorrow is Veterans Day. We have Veterans Day on November 11th for a very specific reason that I think seems to be uh, somewhat lost in our culture. And it's certainly in our culture's memory. That's because at 11 o'clock in the morning, on November 11th in 1918, at the 11th hour, on the 11th day of the 11th month, the armistice that's what it was called, the armistice that ended World War I was signed. And uh, at that point, the war, which was four, had been four years long, uh, came to an end, and the U.S. and a lot of other Western nations were involved in that war. And uh, the idea was that at the end of the war, that every year thereafter at 11 o'clock, wherever that 11 o'clock happened to land around the globe, that people would stop and thank God for the end of the war. And in order to remember that, everybody would wear poppies. And I think we have forgotten that. Uh, in Flanders Fields is where a lot of the people and the men, primarily men, who died in World War II are buried. And it seems to have been lost in our culture. Yes, we remember the veterans, and we call it Veterans Day, but we have long in less than 100 years, we've forgotten what happened in Flanders Fields. Are you familiar with this poem? In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the rosses, crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely sing, fly scarcely heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, we felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Fields. I notice probably I'm the only one in the room wearing a poppy. Because that memory with that poem was written as the war came to an end. And the collective memory of our nation has forgotten it already in 100 years. I bring that to your attention for the sake that tomorrow is Veterans Day, yes. And then secondly, as frankly, an incredibly profound illustration of what we're going to look at and discover in the book of Zephaniah today. Zephaniah was written about 2,600 years ago, 630 BC. It centers around the story of two young men. One, a fellow by the name of Zephaniah in his early 20s, and another young man by the name of Josiah, who was the king of Judah at that time. And to help you kind of get a sense of what's going to happen as we read Zephaniah in just a moment, I'd like to read to you, if you will, a um, statement uh, from Josiah, the fellow who was king at the time. He's 26 years old when this was written, 
somewhere around about there or a little bit thereafter. And this is what he has to say if his words could come to us across the 2,600 years to today. Josiah is the king, and as he's reflecting on the um, life of his nation, the people of Judah, he would say this, could say this. During the time of my great-grandfather Hezekiah, a great and godly king, the Assyrians, those are the people who were controlling the world at the time, they swooped down and destroyed Israel. Israel was the group of Jewish people in the north. He lived in Judah. They made us, Judea, a subject nation, and Israel literally disappeared. You think you have taxes? We had really bad taxes. As vassals of the Assyrians, my grand, great-grandfather, Hezekiah, was forced to give all the gold and silver in his palace to the Assyrians. They even stripped the temple of all its gold. And still that was not enough for the Assyrian king. When my great-grandfather Hezekiah died, his son Manasseh came to the throne. My grandfather Manasseh, who died when I was only six, was as wicked and idolatrous as Hezekiah was good. To please, to please the Assyrian masters, he adopted their gods. He reveled in Assyrian authority and, of course, was handsomely rewarded for his cooperation with these pagans. He worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars, Baal, and Ashtaroth, even followed their ritual of child sacrifice and filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. He sacrificially burned his own son to appease these gods who only lived in fantasy in the minds of these pagans. I hate to admit it, but those times under the rulership of my grandfather Manasseh were the darkest moments of our nation's history. My father Amon succeeded him, did nothing to bring reform. After only two years of king, as a king, there was a coup, and I was left an orphan. I was eight years old, and I became the king at age eight. I became the king under the tutelage of Hilkiah, the priest. You know, it's a terrible loss to give up one's father at such a tender age, but it was great gain to be under the tutelage of Hilkiah and his fellow priests. And not only was I under that learning, but also other members of my family, including Zephaniah, my cousin. He was a man of great devotion to God, and that devotion was evident very early. He was a devoted student of the law and the prophets and wise beyond his years, and the Spirit of the Lord was in him, and we grew close in those special schoolings. I want to honor him and tell you of the heritage he gave not only to me, but to you who listen. It was he who helped me to understand the mysteries of Yahweh God. He explained that Yahweh was a holy God who could not abide corruption, the corruption that tore our nation apart during the time of my grandfather, Manasseh. We spoke of it privately over and over. Zephaniah was fearless in reminding us. He'd read the century-old prophecies of Amos and Isaiah. He knew of their predictions regarding Israel, that Israel would suffer at the hands of her enemies until she learned. And our cousins to the north, the Israelites, they did learn. They are now gone. He told us that a day of wrath would come to Judah, a day of ruin and devastation, and he condemned the leadership of the nation, the politicians, the priests, the judges, and the prophets. And because of Zephaniah's faith and proclamation, his word from the Lord in my early adult reign changed us. I sought the Lord with fervency about the state of our nation. And the Lord gave me courage to purge Judah of idolatry and the attending leprosy of corruption. May I remind you what we're doing, ladies and gentlemen, if 
if you've been with us over the last few weeks. And if you're a guest, I just want to bring up the speed very quickly. 630 BC is a dark and difficult time in the life of anyone called Jewish. At 1000 BC, some three to 400 years prior to that, Israel was in a wonderful state. David had been the king of Israel and everybody was, I mean, Israel was at the height of its glory. But then in the succeeding generations after David, all the sons and the grandsons and the great-grandsons began to fight with one another. They all wanted to be king. They all wanted little kingdoms. And so eventually the nation was split into two with the people in the north called Israel, the people in the south called Judah. And both nations eventually walked away from God, but the ones in the north did it more quickly than the ones in the south. And so when they walked away from God, God's protection was not over them. And the Assyrians came in in 721 wiped out the Israelites, they are gone. They are no longer to be found. People who call themselves Israelis today are the descendants of the people of Judah. In 586, the people of Judah also had wandered away, and at that point, the Babylonians came in. So that as the Assyrians were going up, pardon me, as the Assyrians were coming down, the Babylonians were going up, and Israel got caught in the middle. And in that setting, in 630 BC, before the Babylonians came into Judah, before the Babylonians came into Judah, we have the book of Zephaniah. And it's about two boys, young men, Zephaniah and Josiah, who turned their nation to God. Which sounds really good, but first you've got to read the bad news. Read with me in Zephaniah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. This is not good news. This is really, really bad news that God's going to come in and wipe him out through the hands of the Babylonians. Verse 14. Is what it's going to be like. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I'll bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for he'll make a sudden end to all who live on the earth. This is called the day of the Lord. I want to go, man, I don't know if I like this day. Of course you wouldn't like this day. This is the day when God calls to account all that's been done wrong. It's a day of great destruction, and God has this complaint against the people of Judah, the people in the south. You've been involved in idolatry. You've been involved in false gods. I am against you because of that idolatry. How do we know? 
Well, if you read through other portions of Zephaniah, you discover all kinds of things. Like, for example, in verse 4 and 5, one of the things that God says, I'm against you for, is the fact that people have been going out on the flat roofs of their homes at night, and they've been saying, hey, the people of all the other nations around us, they worship the gods of the stars, and we don't know any God up there, but let's pretend we do, and let's worship that God. That was one complaint. You got in verse 8, where apparently the leaders of the nation are supposed to set the example that we are a people set apart by God and we are set apart to look different, to act differently, to be different. And all they want to do, it appears, is, hey, how do I look? How do I look? Do you like what I'm wearing? Look, do I fit in? And then when you get to Zephaniah 11 and 13, through 13, if you look at there, you'll discover that God's got a complaint about those who are doing business in the marketplace, that they are not walking with God, that they are not living in a righteous way. And when you get to look at the next screen, guys, here's what God says. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink wine. God's saying, you seem to be far more worried about what you look like and whether or not you fit in than whether or not you're obeying me and whether or not you're worshiping me. And he's very upset. Why is he upset? Well, because the people had forgotten the covenant relationship that God had with the Jewish people. Can I remind you what that covenant relationship was? Basically, if in our language we'd say, it's as if God says, we'll do life together, okay? You remember me, I'll remember you. And I'll put, if, if we do life together, it'll be like this. You'll be walking, you'll be traveling, you'll be acting as a nation, and my hand of protection and blessing will be upon you. And wherever I go, you go, and wherever you go, I'll go. And it'll be blessing upon blessing. There was an understanding of that that the people of, of Judah should have known and remembered. Do you remember what that was? That centuries before this, Generations before this, the people of Judah were slaves in Egypt. And God had raised up a man by the name of Moses and said, Moses, lead these slaves out of Egypt. And we think there were probably about a million of them. And Moses went to the Egyptians, and you know the story. Eventually, he gets them all out of slavery, and they get across the Red Sea. And on the, on the east side of the Red Sea, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and God gives him instructions on how they are to live. And those instructions come in various forms. We know the majority of them are found in the Pentateuch. All of them are found in the Pentateuch. But they start in Exodus chapter 20, where God says, first things first. When it comes to, there are some things that you cannot forget. First thing that God says, if you're going to do this covenant relationship with me, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And what are they doing? They're on the roof of the house each night, worshiping starry gods that are only in the fantasy minds of the Assyrians. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. They had forgotten the main, the main stuff. The, and and if, you, if you think through how this happened, well, it's fairly easy to say, well, they're now, they're now older. The nation is, is getting along in two or three centuries along, and things are going well, so to speak, and they've got more money. They've got more education. They've had homes that have now been in the family lines for generations, and they are simply experiencing all kinds of wealth and security 
and abundance, if you will, and they no longer need God. And they're more concerned about other nations' views than what God would think of them. And the result is disaster. The result is disaster. Zephaniah says, we have forgotten who we are. And if we keep forgetting who we are, God will no longer protect us. And when the Babylonians, Zephaniah is looking around and can see that the world is changing, that the Assyrians are coming down, the Babylonians are coming up, and he's going to go, we're going to get caught in the middle. And he's giving this word to his cousin Josiah and the people around. Now, remember, Josiah had been raised from eight years old as the king under the tutelage of a priest by the name of Hilkiah. And every now and then, Josiah as king, as he gets to be an adult, we're now 18 years later, he sends money over to the temple. So one day he gets some money together out of the palace, and uh, this is found in 2 Kings. I'll show it to you in just a minute. He gets some money, sends it over to uh, the temple to Hilkiah and says, here's some money to keep the temple going. I don't really know what you do over there, but fair enough, you guys need to do that, so you do that. And Hilkiah sends a word message back, says, hey, I've been looking through the files. I've been going through all the stuff that your great-grandfather Hezekiah put together, and you know what I've discovered? That for coming up on a hundred years, we haven't looked at this. Coming up on a hundred years, we've not remembered the poppies. Coming up on a hundred years, Hezekiah says, I found a book that no one has read. Nobody has looked at it for a hundred years. And you know what scholars believe that book was? The book of Deuteronomy. For a hundred years, these people who were supposed to have been in covenant relationship with God had done nothing about looking at what God might have to say about their national life. And Josiah begins to read the book and is stunned by how far they have departed from where God wanted them to be as a nation. And he believes what his cousin is saying. He looks and says, hey, the Babylonians are coming up in the, in, in the, global, in the global world around us. And so... Man, we better take a look at what this book says. And he reads Deuteronomy. And he calls the nation to repentance. Look at what happens. 2 Kings chapter 22. God speaks and says, Because your heart was responsive, because you read my word and you listened, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard that I had spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you. And look what's going to happen. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you'll be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. The disaster is still coming. If these people, if they wander off again, the disaster will still come. And as a matter of fact, the Babylonians waited almost 50 years. Two young men, Zephaniah and Josiah, stalled the work of the Babylonians. And it was only after they died that the Babylonians began their rule over Judah. And for the sake of those who are alive during that time, knowing what Scripture had to say about their life together, saved their lives. Literally thousands of lives were saved. Why? Because they remembered the story that was over 100 years old. For 100 years, they hadn't looked at it. And I have a concern. I mean, you have to be careful when, when I say this concern. You, you, it's inappropriate 
It's bad theology, it's bad biblical exegesis to look at the book, at this, book, this story of, of Zephaniah and just wherever it says Judah put America in that. That's a bad, that's bad biblical exegesis. exegesis. Zephaniah was written for the people of Judah at that time, but we can learn from it. And I have this concern about our own nation. Are we or have we forgotten the story of Scripture in our own nation? Or are we more concerned about, hey, do I look good? Do I look good? What do people watch on television? Reality television where people are going, do I look good? I get it. I mean, some of it's funny, some of it's interesting. But when that becomes the national norm versus us saying, what does God have to say about our nation? Here's a case in point. You know, I, sometimes I watch Jay Leno. You guys watch Jay Leno at night? Sometimes, now and then. Though it seems to me the older I get, the less I'm interested in what happens at 10.30 at night, but that's a different story. Nine o'clock in the bed sounds really good sometimes, but that's, well, there you go, but so what? So here's, here's I, I watch Jay Leno and he does these events called jaywalking. You guys ever seen that? It's funny stuff where he'll go out and he'll ask people questions about pretty common everyday understandings. You know, like, um, what's the second amendment to the constitution? And you, I mean, I don't know. And they go, and I'm thinking, what's the second amendment? And you go, ah. And then the questions become easier and easier right down to where, do you know who the vice president of the United States is? And, and they haven't got a clue. And then they'll say, did you vote? Oh, yes, I voted. And I go, oh, my word. Oh, my word. These are the people voting? And they can't even tell you who the vice president is? And if we can't, if we can't even remember that, what about those who've never cracked this book? And have no, does our nation have anything within our collective memories of what it means to walk with God? Sometimes I do jigsaw puzzles. I do them usually Saturday mornings if I'm interested. And so yesterday I was doing jigsaw, this occurs to me, I was doing jigsaw puzzle, yes, not jigsaw, crossword puzzle, pardon me. <laughs> jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> crossword puzzles, let me back up. So yesterday in the paper at the, at the crossword puzzle was, um, it said a biblical book, and it had four letters, and I'm thinking, four letters, biblical book. And I'm going, oh, I don't know what that is. Isn't that, and, and so then, I, that's going this way, all right? And then coming down this way, I finally figured out, okay, because of whatever the, the answer was there, that the first letter would have been A. I'm thinking, A, first Biblical book, A, I have no idea what. And so I'm getting the next down, and then it's going to be A, M. I go, oh, Amos. Oh, yeah, I preached about that about three weeks ago. <laughs> and I'm a professional. <laughs> and I'm thinking, if I can't figure that out without lots of clues and lots of hints to know something about Scripture, then what's that say about our nation? Or what's it say, frankly, about our church? One of the reasons we're doing this series is my conviction that probably for many of us in the room, we've never read the Minor Prophets because we go, I don't get what they mean, and so we just put them aside. How are we to respond to that? I think we've got to look again at what happened in Zephaniah and say, what did they do? According to 2 Kings 22, Josiah humbled himself and said, we've messed up, we have not done this right. We have to be people of humility. We have to be people of prayer. And so to that end, I'm inviting you, I'm inviting you today 
to join me in prayer here at 4.30 and for us to be a congregation of humility. Because if two young men, Zephaniah and Josiah, could turn around a whole nation, think about what a congregation in our community could do if we were praying. I purposely didn't ask this to be put on the church calendar or anything because I didn't want just another church event. I wanted you, if you have time, if you have the inclination and the schedule today, join me for an hour today and let's pray. Five things I want to pray about. I want to pray about our world. I want to pray about our nation. I want to pray about our community. And I want to pray about our church. I want to pray for the families and individuals of our church. 4.30 today. If you have time, if you have the inclination, join me. Because here's what's really cool about the book of Zephaniah. You've got all that doom and gloom that we first read about. And it's pretty rough stuff. But then at the end of the book, once they do, once they do humble themselves, the whole picture changes. In chapter three, after they humble themselves and they get quiet before God, something absolutely fascinating happens. As we read this in verse 17, that the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves, and he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. Zephaniah is looking around and saying, hey, we've humbled ourselves before God, and now there's something really cool that's going to happen. He's no longer going to rebuke us. We've stalled the Babylonians, and God will rejoice over you with singing. I've never heard God sing. You know that I'm a musician of some sorts, and... um, Sometimes I can be listening to music and I can, I, if I listen intently and hear all the moving parts of all the instruments in the background, I close my eyes and sometimes it can be overwhelming emotionally and actually cause tears to flow because it just seems, from, in my brain, it makes sense of how it all comes together and it's this wonderful tapestry of all these artists working together. And if that's overwhelming, where we're listening to music that humans create, What would it be like to hear God sing? Oh, that we would be so humble before God that he would rejoice over us with singing. That our lives would be in such a place where we would hear that music. Where we would not be worried about, hey, do you like what I'm wearing? Do I look good? But more so, am I humble before God? As a matter of fact, can I ask you to step into just for a few minutes an exercise of humility, if you will, please? Because I want to know what it's like to have that business of God singing over me. Would you sing this with me? Search me, O God, and know my heart today. of humility. Words that say, God, I'm going to be humble before you. I'm going to be quiet before you and allow you to sing over me. 
Hear the words from Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon their ways and the righteous, the unrighteous, their thoughts. Let's speak together. Turn back to the Lord who will have mercy to our God who richly pardon. Sing another verse. pray this prayer together. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done. pray this prayer for you. Come Holy Spirit of God and search our hearts with the light of Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ said the first commandment is this, hear O Israel, the Lord our God is the only God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Lord our God, in our sin we have avoided your call. Our love for you is like the morning cloud.
You know, if two young men in their 20s could turn the whole nation around, I wonder what we could do. There's a story that's come across the wires this past week about young men making a difference. And I thought you need to see it today. It's kind of really totally out of the vein of Zephaniah in some ways. But on the other hand, when I saw this story, I thought, we've, this, this is dovetailing of young men doing something for other people, doing something that makes a difference, getting themselves out of the way and say, it's not about me. It's about me being humble. So watch the screens, courtesy of CBS. We end tonight with the football play of the month. It was executed with amazing precision by the Eagles, the Olivet Eagles. Steve Hartman has the play and the post-game analysis on the road. Between classes, they schemed and conspired. For weeks, the football players here at Olivet Middle School in Olivet, Michigan, secretly planned their remarkable play. Did anybody go, this is a crazy idea? No, everyone was in on it. But like the coaches didn't know anything about it. So we were like going behind their back. I've just never heard of a team coming up with a plan to not score. It's just like to make someone's day, make someone's week, just make them happy. The play, which was two plays actually, happened at a home game earlier this month. The first part of their plan was to try to get as close to the goal line as possible without scoring, even if it meant taking a dive on the one yard line, which it did. The crowd was not happy. Quarterback Parker Smith. But us kids knew, hey, we got this. This is our time. This is Keith's time. Keith Orr is the little kid in the brown jacket. He's learning disabled, struggles with boundaries, but in the sweetest possible way. Because of his special nature, it's no surprise that Keith embraces his fellow football players. Hug, Gabe. What is surprising is how they have embraced him. Hello. We thought it'd be cool to do something for him because we really wanted to prove that he was part of our team and he meant a lot to us. Nothing can really explain getting a touchdown when you've never had one before. Which brings us to part two of their play. If you didn't see Keith, it's because they were so protective of him. But he was in the middle of that rush. And when you crossed the goal line, what was that like? Awesome. <laughs> it was like, did he just score a touchdown? Get your what? camera out. I'm like, oh, Keith's parents, Carrie and Jim, almost missed the moment, but they got the significance. Somebody's always going to have his back from now until the day he graduates. She's right. When the football team decides you're cool, pretty much everyone follows suit. Today, Keith is a new kid, although by no means was he the only one who was profoundly changed. What was it like for you? It was like, like once I saw him going, I was smiling like about like here. Wide receiver, Justice Miller. Like, nothing could wipe that smile off my face. Why did it affect you so much? Because, like, he's never been, like, cool or popular, and he went from being, like, pretty much a nobody to making everyone's day. Justice admits the play wasn't his idea. I would have not really thought about that. He says it never crossed his mind to give Keith any glory. Well, I kind of went from being somebody like, mostly cared about myself and my friends to caring about everyone and trying to make everyone's day and everyone's life. Which may just make that touchdown the most successful football play of all time. Steve Hartman on the road in Olivet, Michigan. Put 11 kids on a football team and they can do that. 
as two young men in the middle of a nation in their early 20s just say, hey, turn your nation around, they could do that. Maybe our congregation, if we get humble before God, could change our community and our world. I'd invite you to join me here at 4.30 this afternoon. Let's take a run at it. We'll see what God does. If you're a guest with us, you want to say thanks for being with us. I'll be right here along with other staff. We'd love to meet you. Have a great day, guys.